increasing contestation over the Antarctic? Will we see contestation over fisheries in the South Pacific? Will the infrastructure we develop now continue to function in the face of higher temperatures, in the face of natural disasters or rising sea levels? The broader politics of climate change in Australia does make it difficult to have the type of national conversation about the security implications of climate change. Some of the voices that are arguing in favour of geoengineering are also voices who would seem to be opposed to mitigation efforts and who have even dabbled in climate denial. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. So we recorded this podcast you're about to hear about three to four weeks ago and back then the impact of the coronavirus was only being felt by the poor people of Wuhan and China. And now, as I sit at my desk editing this podcast that will come out this week, we are in the grips of a global pandemic. And so it might seem a little bit strange that we're now going to talk about issues like climate change in the middle of a global crisis. We've made a decision to steer away from doing podcasts on the pandemic. Firstly, because most other pods that talk about the same issues that we discuss are all doing COVID-19 podcasts. So we figure we might leave it up to them because the the airwaves are already pretty saturated with that discussion. And secondly, by the time we recorded something, edited it and put it out, it's likely to be overtaken by events. So we are choosing to continue to talk about the national security issues that are not going to go away, that are going to continue to be relevant even during this global health crisis. Once things become a little bit more apparent on the trajectory of global security, we might start discussing things like the impact on supply line security, the global economy, or how the global crisis has impacted international relations. So for now, we're going to go back and talk about climate change, the issue that has not gone away and that will continue to impact us over generations. in previous podcasts, we are bringing to you a special series on the national security implications of climate change. Our next episode in this series will be speaking to Mr. Chris Sapone, who is the international editor at The Age newspaper and was also one of the early movers talking about foreign interference by way of social media in the most recent presidential election in the US. And he will be talking to us about some of the online disinformation campaigns that are swirling around climate change, whether that be 
people attacking Greta Thunberg and trying to undermine her credibility or whether that be some of the stories about arson and crime surrounding uh, the Australian bushfires or climate change science in general. We'll be having that discussion with him in a few weeks' time. But today we are lucky enough to have Associate Professor Matt McDonald in the studio and he is the Reader in International Relations at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Matt has held posts in international relations at other universities such as uh, University of New South Wales, University of Birmingham and the University of Warwick. Matt's work has focused on security studies, particularly in application to environmental change, Australian foreign and security policy, climate politics, and Asia-Pacific security dynamics. I'm sure that would be Indo-Pacific these days. Now, in this special series, what we are not going to do is go into the discussion around the science of climate change. Because on the most fundamental level, the impacts are the same regardless of what causes it. We're leaving the science to the scientists and the climate policy to the climate specialists. What we are talking about is how we react to the national security impacts of climate change. So let's get to that right after this break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. In the climate change capital of the world as of uh, January or even November uh, last year when the fires started and the smoke haze came in, how did you get the courage to come to, Can- come to Canberra after all of the crap that we've been copying over the last couple of months? <laughs> I had had it on good authority that uh, some of the worst of it had, uh, had passed you by and of course, as we all know, important to get out and support those affected communities uh, as soon as you can. Absolutely. Now, Let's start broadly and let's speak basically from a conceptual perspective. What are the national security implications of climate change? In other words, what is it that makes climate change a national security issue in a global sense? Well, really, since about 2007, we've seen states increasingly recognising the national security implications of, of climate change. And we've seen debates, of course, in the UN Security Council about the international security implications, but a range of states really focusing on what are likely to be some of the national security implications. And some of the central um, factors that are acknowledged here are the possibilities, of course, that climate change could lead to or create conditions in which conflict and instability becomes more likely, becomes something, the terminology in the field is often that of a threat multiplier, the idea that climate change might create conditions in which it's more likely to contribute to state fragility or population displacement and in turn contribute to armed conflict. So some have said, well, actually conflict in Darfur, um, conflict in Syria, some of this in some of these contexts, climate change played something of an issue. So even on a relatively traditional security agenda that's focused on what are the likely future causes of conflict, including potentially even interstate conflict, climate change needs to be part of that conversation. But many other um, states have really identified um, 
issues around how prepared, say, defence is for the, some of the implications of climate change, how well-trained the personnel are for future missions, how much their infrastructure is exposed to the effects of climate change, especially where it's concentrated in coastal areas, like in countries like Australia. Um, and indeed, what sort of missions are countries more likely, are the defence forces of countries more likely to be required to undertake? So things like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions might be far more common in that sense. So those are some of the central ways, I think, in which um, climate change has been increasingly recognised as a national security issue. Right. Okay. So let's let's really break it down here in terms of what are the um, effects on the ground that we will see due to climate change that will impact national security. So we talk about the rising temperature. What are people on the ground going to see? Uh, is that going to be the ports flooding, so therefore we can't get uh, imports and exports out and that affects the economy. What are the actual on-ground implications that turn into a national security issue? So some of the most commonly identified um, direct implications of climate change that might have flow-on effects for national security, natural disasters are, of course, a major one, and, of course, many of your listeners would be only too aware of the, the potentially devastating effects these can have. But in terms of national security, you might be looking at something like a natural disaster that displaces a significant percentage of the population um, that, in turn, um, through that displacement, we might see conflict and contestation over increasingly scarce resources. So things like, even in the context of, say, the um, the hurricane in the in New Orleans, um, we saw sort of examples of looting and criminality. That was something that we might see on the ground, and we saw the deployment of armed forces to help manage that. Of course, we could think of increasing natural disasters as being more likely to create conditions in which we will see conflict between groups, again, over scarce resources or as populations are moving into um, into other spaces. That has also been linked to conflict in um, Darfur with the argument that basically drought as a response to, as a manifestation of climate change, um, created conditions in which we saw displacement, then in turn populations coming into contact and conflict with each other. Those are some of the scenarios that people imagine in which a really direct implication of climate change, so we know natural disasters are more likely to happen and are more likely to be very severe when they do, those can in turn create conditions in which instability and conflict within and between states becomes more possible. Are there any parts of the world that are going to be more impacted by climate change, whether it be Europe or South America or the Asia? Are there any particular regions that are most vulnerable? Vulnerability is usually understood in terms of certainly with the IPCC and in the academic literature. So the IPCC, just for listeners, is the intergovernment, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? That's right. The leading scientific body that um, talks about the, whose science around climate change and its effects in, is supposed to inform the way in which countries come to make agreements as part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change discussions. So increasingly they identify vulnerability as being a combination of how exposed 
different countries are to the effects of climate change, but then also how capable they are of withstanding those immediate effects and responding to them. So we know intuitively, for example, that both the Netherlands and Bangladesh are low-lying countries. We know one of those countries has significant resource to be able to manage the effects of a significant rise in sea levels and the other one doesn't. So vulnerability cuts in, in both of those ways at the level of resource but also at the level of exposure. So those countries that are most vulnerable um, to the effects of climate change are often those in developing uh, in the developing world. So in Australia's immediate region, of course, in the Pacific, we see a lot of vulnerability associated with the fact that there are a lot of low-lying countries that will be exposed by rises in sea levels or indeed the effects of natural disasters. In much of the um, African region, there's also an argument that we'll see significant impacts of climate change and that's been a real area of focus recently that we might see some level of instability and conflict in parts of uh, in parts of Africa. Is, is that is that due to drought, or what? What are the what are the um, impacts of climate change that we're looking at in Africa? So the argument is largely around things like drought, um, desertification, so the um, sort of changing the spread of deserts, basically to former arable land, lack of availability in comparative terms of uh, rainfall, and the implications that has on agriculture and grazing land, and all of those things might create population displacement in turn creating conditions in which instability becomes more likely. Of course, they are in and of themselves very problematic for local populations who rely on agriculture or grazing for their livelihoods, but in terms of the national security agenda or international security agenda, those are the primary concerns. And are there any direct impacts on the global economy that we can expect from uh, climate change? Or is, or is it mainly a human or traditional security issue? No, well, the Stern report in 2006 argued that we would see a devastating impact on the global economy associated with climate change. And if we think solely about natural disasters and their cost associated with addressing them, we're talking billions of billions of dollars. The, the example of Japan's three-part disaster of Fukushima, the tsunami, the earthquake, those things have cost the Japanese economy billions of dollars, but it's also had long-term implications in terms of Japan's economic growth. We can imagine the same things around the place. And indeed, some of those arguments about the impacts of the bushfires in the Australian context are worth bearing in mind there as well. So really significant global economic impacts associated with effects of climate change. And just to preempt some of the people that are bound to get in touch with us, you're not actually saying that the Fukushima triple disaster was related to climate change. You're saying that is an example of how how a natural disaster can have huge economic impact, correct? That's right, yes. So, Excellent. Yeah. So there are the economic costs and some of the localised costs of uh, the impacts of climate change around the world. Are there any benefits to any particular countries or any particular elements to the global economy that we may see of climate change? It's strange question to ask. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the things that makes climate change such a difficult issue to address effectively at an international level is not only, of course, that you have that you require genuine international cooperation to address it, that unilateral action, action by one state alone, no matter how significant, is not enough to address the problem. You also have differentiated levels of responsibility for creating the problem in the first place. And as I think that question flags, different levels of vulnerability to its effects. So some of those states I've mentioned in Africa, in the Pacific region, 
very exposed and vulnerable to effects of climate change. Other countries like Russia, for example, it might be possible that they have increasing access to warm water ports. It's certainly going to have implications in terms of the amount of arable land they have. So whereas countries like Australia and many of the countries in the African region will experience a reduction in arable land, it's actually possible associated with climate change that Russia may have increased agricultural capacity. And that's, again, one of those things that will just make it more challenging to address the problem of climate change, that not only do you have differentiation when it comes to who's exposed to the problem, but some who might seem at an immediate level to potentially benefit. Right. Okay. So let's let's drill down onto Australia now. Um, what is specific to Australian national security in terms of the implications of climate change? So one of the main issues with Australia is the exposure of um, defence equipment, infrastructure, personnel training to the effects of climate change. Um, certainly, defence uh, estate, as defence is the largest landholder in Australia, and so. Much of that is coastal, of course, as is much of the Australian population, and so potentially quite vulnerable to the effects of things like natural disasters and sea level rises. There's also the question of how prepared Australia is in terms of defence equipment, how prepared we are in terms of the training of personnel for an increasing number of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions, certainly in our region, um, and that's increased significantly, but also, again, as the bushfires attest, as Queensland floods from 10 years ago now attest as well, that we do see an increasing pressure on the government to make available defence resources to respond to those types of effects as well. Then there's questions around how prepared is defence for things like future fuel availability and the types of fuel it can and should use for which forms of equipment it will need for different missions, how prepared they are for the effects of climate change and working in hotter temperatures. At all of these levels, defence is forced in the Australian context to think really seriously about what some of the effects of climate change are likely to be. Then on the more traditional sort of security strategic outlook, there is, of course, concern about large-scale population displacement in Australia's immediate region. Um, again, potentially... And, and that, that's going to be because of rising sea levels or is that because of extreme weather events? What, what's going to cause that? Probably a combination. Um, it may be that it's more of, again, that it be, it's a threat multiplier in this context, that it's one of those things that creates conditions in which population movement becomes more likely. But it's certainly most analyses suggest that a combination of natural disasters and rising sea levels will mean that we will see increasing levels of population displacement in the immediate region and certainly increasing pressure on Australia to try to find ways to respond to help communities that are immediately affected certainly by natural disasters. So that's a concern for Australia. There's also arguments about the possible pathways to conflict we might see over things like Will we see increasing contestation over the Antarctic, for example? Will we see contestation over fisheries in the South Pacific? We know in these instances that we we see a reduction in the number of fish in certain areas in the South Pacific associated with patterns like ocean acidification, which are of themselves linked to climate change. So in that context... We've also seen increasing levels of penetration from international fishing vessels that arguably create conditions in which conflict becomes more more likely. So on the traditional security side of things, 
There are some general concerns about interstate contestation, but I'd say some of those immediate concerns about disaster management and relief and population movement are probably the central concerns when it comes to Australia's future strategic outlook. Now, you've mentioned defence in there quite a lot, and you've also implicated them in the response to climate change, such as um, disaster relief, humanitarian assistance and so on. Is the Department of Defence the right organisation to be responding to climate events and natural disasters, or should we be considering a different approach? And I ask this question because the Defence Force is essentially uh, trained in high-intensity warfare, and they do. there are a lot of dual uses for them and so on. Uh, we've seen this discussion a lot in terms of responding to the bushfires. You know, they've got large planes. Why can't they go out there and drop fire retardant? But the reality behind that is quite often that that takes very specific equipment, very specific training. Time has to be spent doing that training to make sure people are are capable and they're current in their training. And then that has to be factored into the defence budget and also into their training regime, which will be replacing time that they spend training to do high-intensity warfare. So I'm not trying to cast a leading question here. I'm trying to show the complexity of using a an organisation that is set up for one very specific, uh, very complex reason and using it for something quite different just because they happen to have uh, the logistics for it? It's a good question. I mean, in a sense, the Department of Defence acknowledged this itself in its submission to a 2017 Senate inquiry into the national security implications of climate change for Australia where they said, look, we are recognising that we have undertaken a larger number, an increasing number of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. But just to reiterate, this isn't what our primary task of defence actually is. To some degree, I think my I would be keen to invert the question to some extent and say, well, actually, we should think in more fundamental terms about what we want our defence forces to actually be doing. We need to step back and think, What missions do we want them to be undertaking? What resources are we committing to the likely scenarios in which they're going to be deployed? Then think about how we prepare them to be best able to respond to those scenarios. Now, it may be if after that genuine scenario planning and that genuine strategic thinking, we think actually climate change is unlikely to create any of those conditions to address it, then of course, we and we think there's likely to be future axes of conflict with between China and the United States or whatever, it might be appropriate then to say, all right, well, let's focus our attention on those traditional roles. But over a long period of time, the Australian Defence Force has actually stepped back and said, what do we at a fundamental level want our defence forces to be able to do? So peacekeeping was an addition to the suite of measures that were undertaken. We had those debates in the 1980s about what our defence force should do and how it should be prepared. There's no reason why climate change and its effects can't be something that forces us to think in categorical terms about what defence is actually for. So I've got a lot of sympathy in the short term in an immediate sense for the argument that we are at the moment developing fairly ad hoc responses to something like natural disasters that are about saying, here are some resources, let's use them. There may be an immediate case for that. But in the longer term, I think what we really need to do is make sure that we think really strategically 
about what sort of resources we need to address some of the threats associated with climate change. Honestly, the the hardest part of that discussion is who pays for it? Does it come out of the defence budget? Where does this come from? But the interesting point that you're bringing up here, I think, is the issue is layered. Do they have the right training and the right equipment to operate their standard traditional role in an environment of change? And are they the right organisation to uh, respond to the impacts of this change as well? Well, that seems like as good a place as any to stop for a break. And we will be back to talk more national security implications of climate change with Professor Matt McDonald from the University of Queensland. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Is the Australian Defence Force keeping up with its peer organisations around the world in thinking about how to operate in this environment of change? That's a really good question. So some of the research I've been doing about the comparative responses of other countries suggests that Australia is a fair way behind. In terms of climate security and thinking strategically about the security implications of climate change generally, but then also specifically on this question of what exactly should defence be doing. So we've seen debates in the United States for a really long period of time about, and the Pentagon has arguably been pushing climate policy rather than the other way around. Um, Yeah. How is it that the US Department of Defence came to be one of the world leaders in adapting to climate change or the impacts of climate change. How did that happen? Well, in a sense, they've always been an organisation. There's such a a large organisation, well-resourced, that has always had to think in the long term about what types of missions it needs to undertake and how prepared it is for future scenarios. And I think that has then informed the way they've embraced that sort of imperative of we need to think then about how we to put it bluntly, green the military and prepare ourselves for future scenarios in which we're likely to be to be used. There are certainly other countries as well, like um, France, for example, that's a fair way ahead of Australia in terms of this is what we need to do to prepare our defence resources for natural disasters in particular for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions, in part because, again, they're concerned about the impacts of natural disasters in particular for former colonies and the sense of obligation they have towards them. So I think there are other countries that are ahead of Australia in this space. The argument about whether Australia's defence forces should be doing this type of role is an interesting one. At the domestic level, it gets more complicated I think at the international level, if we say we're more likely to be called upon and to utilise our resources for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief measures, 
then it's far more likely that we'll have resources, training, knowledge and capacity to be able to, to draw on some of that experience to apply that domestically. So I think they can potentially mutually reinforce each other. How that balance plays out in terms of the traditional role of defence in terms of war preparation and execution versus, on the other hand, preparing for natural disasters, that's always going to be a really difficult challenge and question, I think. So if the Australian Defence Force isn't keeping up with this, then you would expect that that's that's a policy issue. It it, it filters down from policy makers and the responsibility of, of national leaders. And that's got to feed into our reputation in the region. How is our international reputation being impacted by our level of preparedness and how does that impact our ability to operate in a region that is so vulnerable to climate change? So Australia does have some cachet associated with and credibility associated with its willingness to assist in the region in terms of disaster relief. And so that's been something that countries in the region are aware of. Um, Australia does have an uh, element of its aid program that does contribute towards resilience building in the region in the face of uh, climate change. At a more fundamental level, though, Australia's own emissions profile and its own support for fossil fuels at an economic and political level does make it then harder for Australia to develop and sustain a really strong reputation in the climate space. So in terms of being able to achieve different sets of political ends through its foreign policy, that then becomes more challenging, I think, for a country like Australia. Does the political environment also impact our ability to make proper and pragmatic policy decisions in this space? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it does seem to be relatively clear that given the recent history of climate politics in Australia, that it becomes difficult, even with a will to do so at the level of, say, defence, to think really significantly about the implications of climate change. There are arguably some political risks for people within defence to actually really promote that particular end. And, um, you know, there might be a sense even that people are disinclined to use the C word to actually talk about climate change openly for out of concern that this might be seen as something that is a party political position that they're taking. So I think that policy position and the broader politics of climate change in Australia does make it difficult to have the type of national conversation we need to have about the security implications of climate change and for defence to really lead in terms of this is going to be the strategy of dealing with those security implications of climate change. It's it's quite often one of the themes that comes up in our podcast is that sometimes politics is a national security challenge in and of itself. <laughs> now, to to get to the actual policy response and into the nitty gritty of it, the the term resilience just came up and it comes up quite often in these discussions. In it's another way of saying that. Uh, Trying to dial back climate change isn't the only approach, if it even is an effective approach, but building resilience to absorb the impact of these uh, incidences is one of the approaches as well. Let's break down what resilience means on the ground. Is it putting better drainage on roadways? Is it building a fighting fund to uh, bounce back from big disasters? What, What actually is resilience in practice? It can be really any of those things. I I always think, because resilience is a concept had its origins in ecological thought when people were thinking, well, if we can't prevent change, 
of some description. How do we manage to describe continued functionality in the face of change? And that's really what resilience is about. It's about the capacity of ecosystems of communities to continue to function in the face of in the face of change. So in that sense, it can mean something as simple as how well prepared are we in terms of the infrastructure? Will the infrastructure we develop now continue to function in the face of higher temperatures, in the face of natural disasters even, or rising sea levels? Are we thinking about these things in terms of how our infrastructure is managed? But it can also be what mechanisms do communities themselves decide to put in place in terms of managing the effects of of climate change, of natural disasters? At a fundamental level, these are conversations that almost necessarily need to involve local communities because the needs of different communities are going to be different in terms of what does continued functionality of that community look like in the face of climate change? And is is it like it's not just a governmental approach as well as as you're pointing out there? Is there a role for civil society? Is there a role for private industry? And is there a role for the individual in terms of building resilience in daily life and business operations? Absolutely, I think resilience has to be not just a whole of government commitment; it has to be all of society. We have to really think as as people, as communities, we need to think about, well, if this is a likely scenario, in the same way we, I've made a case that defence should think in fundamental terms, these are likely to be some of the effects of climate change. How then do we prepare ourselves for it? I think communities at all levels, including all the actors you've identified, really do need to then think, well, what is it that we can do, that we need to do in order to ensure that even if the temperature increases by this much or even if we have a bushfire event or even if there is flooding, what are we going to be in a position to do to make sure this community continues to function? I think there's been a lot of people making a case for looking at the ways in which Indigenous communities have survived over a long period of time, obviously a lot longer than white settlement without doing nearly the damage we managed to do. But there's also lessons from the ways in which communities have responded to the bushfire crisis and the ways in which we've seen, you know, people reaching out, businesses reaching out to try to make sure that communities don't just fold but actually find ways to bounce back. And have there been any particular innovative responses or uh, inspiring responses that you've seen anywhere from around the world of particular ways to deal with climate change. And one of the things I'm thinking about here is uh, geoengineering and some of the science behind that. So geoengineering does have a controversial place in debates about the response to climate change. And a lot of that's because, you know, there is a genuine sense that when you move away from mitigation or adaptation and you move to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, for example, you're sort of playing God with um, Earth system functions. Like, like we're not doing that by pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in the first place. Well, that's right. I mean, people who would make a case that we're now in the geological era of the Anthropocene would say, well, that's precisely what it's all about. We are already a geological force on the Earth in ways we weren't before. The geoengineering space is challenging, though, because it's often really hard to know exactly what the effects of different measures are going to be on local ecosystems. It's not altogether clear what the governance of geoengineering should look like, who's in charge of it, how much does it need to a particular form of oversight, for example, what does it look like on the ground, all of these types of questions 
make it challenging. And then the additional political challenge to it is that some of the voices that are arguing in favour of geoengineering are also voices who would seem to be opposed to mitigation efforts and who have even dabbled in climate denial. So, of course, most famously, Prime Minister Tony Abbott made a strong case for carbon sequestration, which meant we continue to burn carbon, but we don't allow the gases to be released. We sort of um, trap them and bury them. There's a lot of contestation over whether that would actually be effective and would work. But the more problematic thing for advocates was that this was someone who seemed to be trying to take our attention away from mitigation efforts, who seemed to actually be fighting efforts to minimise the effects of climate change or to minimise our contribution to climate change. So the more nuanced accounts recently would say geoengineering, if it has a place, needs to be a stopgap thing alongside mitigation efforts. But in the past, some of those people using it as, well, we can do this instead of actually changing our fossil fuel economy or existing modes of energy production, that didn't make it easier for advocates. Are there any geoengineering methods or projects on the horizon that you think do show some kind of promise to helping us deal with this issue? Or are we still really at, at, at the leading edge of thinking about this? This is getting to really towards the edge of my expertise, but in theory, things like solar radiation management, where you do actually reflect elements of the sun's rays out of the atmosphere, and some form of ocean seeding in which you sort of create conditions in which you allow plankton blooms that then suck in carbon dioxide and then fall to the bottom of the ocean, taking the carbon dioxide with them. Theoretically, those mechanisms could potentially work to extract carbon dioxide or really prevent carbon dioxide from being in the atmosphere, but there's still so much uncertainty about exactly how those systems would function and how effective they would be, not to mention what are their likely effects on local ecosystems. It's good that we do think about the future and think about the knock-on implications about technologies like this, but it just seems to be what we should have been thinking about, um, the the knock-on effects of burning massive amounts of coal and of CFCs and things like this. So it, it, it always seems like we've got to ask about that we, we think too much about the remedy than we do about the infliction in the first place. Um, but I guess that is part of the human condition. Now, uh, to wrap this discussion up, it's a question that I've been asking some of our other presenters on the podcast. Um, Are there any little moments in your career, whether that be a book that you've read or a conversation that you've had or even a song that you've heard that has flicked a little light on in your mind about the way you think about climate change or even just international security in general? So I could potentially um, mention a few things, but I think the the very first concert – I went to, as a young man, I think I was about 15, and I saw um, Midnight Oil. And I remember being incredibly influenced by, as I listened more and more to the music, just love the music, they were great to listen to live, but actually reflecting on the lyrics about, you know, for everything from Indigenous dispossession to, of course, environmental damage, it, was, it really did have a significant effect on me. In fact, there's, I'm often, it's a question of, of been desperate to to ask him and to ask uh, to him, ask him being Peter Garrett. Peter Garrett, yeah. To ask, I've been desperate to ask Peter Garrett whether he thinks actually politically he had more impact as um, president of the Australian Conservation Foundation or as Environment Minister 
or as lead singer of Midnight Oil. It's, it was just a really nice illustration for me. As someone who's gotten into politics and someone who thinks that actually politics is inescapable in the way we live and interact with each other, you know, to me there's something really profound about the effect he had on me at the level of here I am just singing a song with some with some sort of thoughtful lyrics about where we are and how we live and... Yeah, that was probably a that was that was a moment for me. That al- album, that concert experience, was one that sort of. Which, which album was it? It was probably Blue Sky Mining. Actually, I'm really showing my age there, but uh, yes, it was Blue Sky Mining. I think so. Not quite early enough for Tender One or um, Diesel and Dust, but uh, yes, soon after. Yep, fantastic Aussie band. Uh, I would say that actually Red Sails in the Sunset was one of the small defining moments for me about thinking about the Cold War, thinking about the potential for nuclear destruction and so on. And as a young kid, it was kind of scary. So we share something in common. Professor Mac McDonald, thanks very much for coming on the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. And a big thanks to Professor Matt McDonald for coming in to speak to us on the National Security Podcast in this special episode on the national security implications of climate change. In the next episode of this special series, we will be speaking to Chris Zapone, the digital foreign editor of The Age, about the disinformation campaigns around climate change and related issues. So make sure you tune in for that. If you have any particular questions, we are very happy to involve them in our discussion and you can send them to us using Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. You can hit us up at NatSecPod on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can give us a personal touch and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. While you're there, we'd also love a rating. If you could give us a five-star rating on whichever platform you pod with, that would be greatly appreciated. Or you can just let us know about issues you'd like us to discuss in future episodes of the National Security Podcast. But for now, thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.